0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. If you have your Bibles, you can open them with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark the 12th chapter as we continue our study on the journey. We'll look at uh, Christ in Jerusalem. We didn't do video announcements because of spring break this week. A couple of things I'll call your attention to. You can also look in the uh, bulletin that was handed to you on your way in. First of all, if you're a widow, we have a special luncheon coming up for you on Sunday, March 30th, just RSVP. And finally, if you're married, contemplating marriage, uh, maybe in a great marriage and just want to continue on that way, or maybe in a difficult situation you'd like to tweak and improve, uh, the Intimate Encounters class begins next Sunday uh, at the 11 o'clock hour right across the hallway we'd invite you to participate in that class. So, also, if you look in there, we have uh, had several families that have lost loved ones in the past week. Take a look at those and respond accordingly. Mark chapter 12. This is our 21st message from a series we've in called The Journey. And this morning we look at a message we've entitled A Final Exam. Beginning in verse 18, Mark 12, 18. And some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him. Teacher Moses wrote for us, for us, if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother shall take the wife and raise up the offspring to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no offspring. And the second one took her and died, leaving behind no offspring. And the third likewise. And so all seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. I'm thinking to myself, if I'm the fourth dude in this family, I'm not marrying that black widow. What about you? (laughs) I mean, you, you look at this facetious illustration, and it really is absurd. Verse 23, in the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Now, if you go back and look at verse 18, the Sadducees said... There was no resurrection. And their question is, so in the resurrection, whose wife is she? So obviously there's something taking place here that we need to look at in detail. Jesus said to them, and if you write in your Bibles, underline verse 24. Look at his answer to these religious experts. He says to them, is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? He looks at them and says, boys, you've got two problems. These are the religious leaders of that day. These are the educated theologians of that day. And he says, you've got two problems. Number one, you don't understand the scriptures and you don't understand the power of God. Boys, you don't know what you're talking about. That's what he's saying. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Boys, you made a big mistake here. Then he goes on in a second encounter. One of the scribes, who is a lawyer, a legal expert, came and heard them arguing. So he's listening to this conversation and recognizing that he had answered them well. He asked Jesus, which commandment is foremost of all? Jesus answered the foremost is here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these and the scribe, the lawyer looks at Jesus and says, good answer, good answer. He says, right, teacher. You've truly stated he is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any questions. They quit asking Jesus questions. This is his final exam from the religious leaders in Israel. Father, as we look at the word and look at this final exam, we pray that you would give us grace, that you would give us understanding and then the ability not only to be hearers of the word, but also doers. In the name of Jesus, amen. Final exams. Uh, For some of you, those exams are coming up, aren't they? In a few couple of months, you'll be taking final exams. For many of us, we're grateful we don't have to think about those ever again. Amen? Amen. I mean, they are done in their past. Google up funny exam answers for a good laugh. Here are a few. I gave you some of these a few months ago. Uh, Here are a couple of more. Name six animals which live specifically in the Arctic. Two polar bears, three, I mean four seals, Okay. Uh, final actual answers. Final exams. Uh, here's one: to change centimeters to meters, you take out centi. Everybody can see that. I bet they get an A on that. How many of your teachers out there? Let me see your hands. Your te- there you go. What would you give them right there? Um, I like Miss Edwards. She is my teacher. I like it when she does meth with us. Everybody signs up for her class. And here's my favorite, I showed it to you a few months ago, Find X, and uh, if you can't see it, you can look back there. Uh, here it is, right here. There it is. Wow. Fortunately, when Jesus took his final exam, he had better answers than those. He had better answers than those. Actually, what we see here is one, uh, a group of people who come seeking answers from the Savior, but they are false seekers. They're really setting a snare than looking for a solution. Then there's also this one individual and he comes for a totally different reason. He eavesdrops on this conversation and he comes as a true seeker. He comes seeking a solution but he's not all in. He comes seeking a solution but he's not all in. Let's look at this first group. This first group are the Sadducees. They are false seekers. They're really setting a snare rather than looking for a solution. say, Gary, how do I know they're setting a snare? How do you know that? Well, if you look at verse 1, Mark puts in parentheses for us, they say there's no resurrection. There is a clue right there. They say there's no resurrection, but they come asking questions about the resurrection. Basically, what they're asking Jesus is a twofold question. Teacher, is there eternal life? And if you believe there's eternal life, do you believe in this resurrection like the Pharisees do? Because we don't buy it. We don't buy it. I'll never forget on the LSU campus, there was a uh, philosophy professor named Dr. Corne. Dr. Corne took uh, two of his lectures to disprove Christianity. He felt like that was his duty. And so a lot of us who were young believers on the LSU campus would, uh, would take his class, and uh, we would listen to him rail on for two lectures about that. And then we would boldly at times raise our hand and ask questions, and he would usually squash us like a bug. But I'll never forget, he, he talked about eternal life. He said, those of you who are Christians out there, raise your hand. Of course, you know, everybody in the class raised their hand just about because they all thought they were Christians. And he says, I want you to know what your word says. Your word says dust to dust, ashes to ashes, there's no such thing as eternal life. In fact, when you breathe your last, you become fossil fuel for Phillips and Exxon. And you're a young freshman, sophomore, taking introductory philosophy class, and this guy's got a Ph.D., and you're thinking he's the most brilliant man in the whole world, and he's given you stuff like that, and it sends you to your room scrambling, looking for answers. I'll never forget looking at this passage. Looking at this passage. Because in this passage, what the Sadducees do is they serve Christ. And on that service, they're sure they're going to ace him. They're sure they are going to hit a 102-mile-an-hour tennis ball right past him. But Jesus returns a backhand smash that they cannot touch. So let's see how he does it, and let's see what it says. What happens after eternal life? What happen, or what happens after death? Is there eternal life? Is there a resurrection of the physical body for eternity? Does that really happen? The Sadducees were a religious sect. Uh, They were from the learned upper upper class. They were closely allied to the priesthood, and so they had high influence within the temple. The Pharisees were more among the common people. They tended to be educated in the word, but not as educated in in learning and the arts and stuff as the Sadducees were. And so the the Sadducees were the highly educated, upper class, closely allied to the priesthood who had influence in Jerusalem and the temple even more so than the Pharisees. So, So they would be the conservatives, if you will whereas the Pharisees would be more progressive. And there are other things. The Sadducees believed in the Torah only. The Torah was the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, whereas the Pharisees held not only to the Torah, but also the prophets and the writings. The Sadducees did not accept the oral traditions that had been passed down in Judaism, where the Pharisees did accept those oral traditions. The Sadducees did not believe, they denied the existence of angels and demons, basically the supernatural, Natural, but the Pharisees did not. And most importantly, the Sadducees denied a future resurrection. They denied eternal life, whereas the Pharisees did not. So the Sadducees are saying there's no eternal life, there is no resurrection. So, Jesus, let me give you an illustration that shows you how dumb it is to believe in eternity. Let me show you that. And it has to do with this issue of marriage. In fact, it's a liverite marriage. It's found in the book of Deuteronomy, in the law. These guys were trained in the law, trained as far as the Mosaic law. And so they're saying, here's the problem. It, you legislate in Deuteronomy 25, 5, and 6, jot it down, take a look at it later. In Deuteronomy 25, 5, or 6, it, it says in the Old Testament law to preserve the family name and to preserve family property, to preserve the name and property. Uh, ladies, if you are a childless widow, uh, your husband dies, you're without child, you have to marry your brother-in-law. I must admit to you there are a lot of people, a lot of women who were praying in Israel in those days that their husband wouldn't die. They don't want to be marrying their brother-in-law's. Same thing would be happening today. Ladies, amen? Amen. Praying for your husband to live long, fruitful lives that you would have kids so you wouldn't have to marry your unmarried brother-in-law. So, if you are a childless widow to preserve the family name and to preserve the family property, you would have to take your brother-in-law as your husband. You had that responsibility if you were a man. The Sadducees' argument was based upon their understanding that eternal life was merely an extension of life on earth, that this woman has seven husbands, and it's ridiculous to think about her living her life in eternity with seven men. And so they throw out this absurd illustration to prove a point. That the resurrection's absurd, and they throw out this absurd illustration. Well, Jesus takes the serve that they serve to him, and he smashes it back where they cannot touch it. Jesus corrects their poor understanding of eternity. First of all, he talks about the fallacy of their argument, then he talks about the fact of the resurrection. He talks about the fallacy of their argument, then he talks about the fact of the resurrection. It begins in verse 24. Is not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. Now, you know, for us, we read that and it's clean and neat. I mean, we read that and we, our hearts don't begin to skip a beat. But I guarantee you, if you are standing in that first century audience, and you're looking at the Sadducees, the religious leaders, the theologians of that day, and you look at them and say, by the way, guys, you may be well trained, but you don't understand the word of God and you understand the power of God. That's like looking at Bach and saying, you don't understand music, or Michelangelo and saying, you don't understand art, or looking at Socrates and saying, you don't understand philosophy, or looking at Jerry Jones and saying, you don't understand football. (laughs) Illustration falls apart right there, doesn't it? (laughs) But it makes you understand the illustration, doesn't it? You see, he's looking at these guys who are the best trained, the PhDs, the theologians, the brightest and best of that day, and saying, you don't understand the word of God, you don't understand the power of God, you are solely mistaken. You say there's no resurrection, you're dead wrong. You're dead wrong. And then he goes on, and what does he do? What is this backhand smash that he delivers to them that they cannot possibly get to in return? Well, here it is in verse 25. For they rise from the dead, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And you're saying, that's it? That's his answer? I mean, if they look at him and, and he says, you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God? And he says, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry or are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. That's it? That's the backhand smash? That, that, that shows the fallacy of their argument? What does this mean? Well, the first thing he does is substantiate the resurrection. He says, when they rise and dead." By the way, this is not about the resurrection. Jesus is about the resurrection of every saint in all of history who trusts in the living God. It's about you. It's about me. Will this body one day be resurrected? 1 Corinthians 15 is the parallel reference that you need to read through and look at. So the first thing Jesus does is affirm the resurrection. When they rise from the dead. It's a fact. It's going to happen. When they rise from the dead, these men will neither marry, nor will they be given in marriage, nor will the ladies, but we're like the angels in heaven. He says in heaven or in the future, in this new heavens and new earth that I'm creating, uh, your relationships can be totally different. Because your body's going to be totally different. You're going to be resurrected, and you're going to be like the angels. And it doesn't mean you're going to be like the angels, that you're some disembodied spirit floating around. That's not what he's saying. That's not the teaching here. In fact, it's the opposite of that. It's precisely what the passage is not teaching. There are those who think, well, life after death is us floating around in clouds in some disembodied state, playing harps, sprouting wings with a halo. That's childish. It's not what the Word of God teaches. You may have thought that when you were a kid growing up, that you go to heaven, you become an angel, and that's what you do. That's not what the Word of God teaches. In fact, what the teaching here is, is the Jewish understanding of resurrection, is that you will have a new embodied life to serve forever. You'll have this new glorified body, this different body, this resurrected body. You're not going to be like the angels, not in that you're going to be disembodied, but you're not going to be like the angels in that your relationship will be different. And we're not going to spend time talking about that today, but the relationship will be different. You're not going to have marriage. You're not going to have kids. That's not going to take place in all of eternity. So, Jesus' first point is your argument is fallacious. Your argument is wrong. There will be a resurrection. This is not just a continuation. You see, here's the problem that most of us have. Most of us see eternal life as being resuscitated, where it's really about being transformed. That's the struggle. The resurrection does not mean mere that we are resuscitated, that we come back in the exact sort of physical shape that we have. And I'm grateful for that one. But we are transformed and given this new glorified body. The Jewish doctrine of the resurrection and the doctrine of the scriptures that we understand from 1 Corinthians 15 is that one day this body will be raised from the dead, joined with the soul, and we will spend eternity in the presence of the Father in the new heavens, new earth, created by him to serve him, to glorify him forever. And Jesus says, you guys are wrong. In fact, he says, let me give you the fact of the resurrection. His first point is, resurrection is going to take place. He affirms it. Your argument is, is crazy. Secondly, he says, here's the fact of the resurrection. When Moses was standing before the burning bush, God identified himself by saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now, Moses lived centuries after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Where were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They died. I mean, they had died. They were in the presence of God, but they had died. And he says in the next verse, I am the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And he's saying the fact that he appeals that to, to the fact that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob says he is the God of those who are living, not those who are dead. There is an eternal life. There is a resurrection. I am the God of those who are living, not the God of those who are dead. These men are as much alive now as they was in the past. You see, if there is no resurrection, then, then we should live for today and not for eternity. Let me bring this home. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, referring to the resurrection of Jesus, Paul says, if Christ is not resurrected, our faith is in vain. The cornerstone and the hinge of Christianity, Easter is coming up in about four or five weeks. We're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. If Christ is not resurrected, our faith is in vain. If Christ is resurrected, then our faith is true. And in that faith is the fact that he says one day we will rise up. We will rise up from our graves. That will happen. I love what Thomas Watson, the great Puritan writer, said. He said you are more certain to rise from your grave than you are to rise from your bed. And he's right. And so if Jesus has resurrected, our faith is not in vain, and one day we too will be resurrected. So what do we do with that? Let me give you three quick responses to the resurrection. First of all, response number one, worship the one who has been resurrected. Worship the one who has been resurrected. Jesus Christ is resurrected from the dead, therefore we should be worshiping Him. He is the Lord of all. He is majestic. We come to the table and we celebrate communion to worship Him. We sing songs to worship Him. in your quiet times, in your time in the word, you worship Him. You worship the one who has indeed been resurrected from the dead. Secondly. secondly, don't fear death because death produces life. So here doesn't make any sense, Sure it does. You don't have to fear death because death produces life. I walk a couple of times a week with your friends, and as we're walking around, one of the things we love to do at this time of the year, we pray at the end of our walks, and one of the things we always pray about and are grateful for, if you look at the trees right now, take a walk around your community, around the city you live in, in central Texas, you will see trees are starting to what? Starting to bud. New life coming from that which is dead. I mean, they look dead as a doornail for all these weeks, all these months after the winter we've had. And all of a sudden, now, leaves are starting to come out very slowly. And it's a reminder of the new life that we have in Christ. From death comes life. D.L. Moody was a great evangelist of yesteryear. He lived in the 1800s. And uh, he wrote this. He says, someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I will be more alive than ever in my life. I will only have gone up higher, that is all, out of this old clay tenement, out of this tent, into a home that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. The day that I breathe my last here, I will be more alive than I ever have been on this planet. Amen? Amen. That's the hope of eternity. Believe me, for the last year, my mind's been wrapped around eternity. I've read two books on heaven, Randy Alcorn's that's yay big, Jody Erickson Tadas, who is yay big. And I'm trying to get my mind wrapped around heaven and new creation, new earth, and what what all that is going to be like. And the one thing I come away from my studies with is the most important thing. It's not about me, but it's about him. There are a lot of people writing about the new heavens and new earth right now, and I appreciate that. I appreciate the new work that's there. I appreciate the dialogue and talk that's taking place. But honestly, a lot of it is anthropocentric. It's centered on man. What am I going to do eternity? What am I going to look like in heaven? Where am I going to roll? What am I going to do? It sounds like the disciples to me arguing who's going to be prime minister and secretary of state. Let me remind you the most important thing about heaven and the new creation and new earth is not about you, but it's about him. What makes grandpa's house special is grandpa. What makes the eternity special is the Father. It's about being with Him in His presence, serving Him, honoring Him, working for Him for all of eternity. Don't make it about you, make it about Him. Finally, we should give thanks for the new body that one day we'll receive. We should give thanks for the new body that one day... I I don't know about you, but as I get older, I find things don't work quite the same as they did when I was younger. Have any of you experienced that yet? can't even get your hands up, can you? <laughs> I mean, you go to the gym and you lift a little weight and you tweak something over here and two months later it's still tweaking. It's like, ah! That's crazy. I pulled a groin muscle two years ago. Every once in a while it still catches and it's like, you've got to be kidding me. It's like it's never going to heal. I did it doing lunges. I'll never do a lunge another day in my life. Period, ever. I'm done. Why would a 59-year-old man be in a gym doing lunges anyway? That doesn't make any sense. Give thanks one day for the new body that you're going to receive. Have you seen her before, Johnny Erickson Tata? She dove in the Chesapeake Bay when she was 19 years old, and uh, she did not know what was under there, hit her head on her walk, became a quadriplegic. She's since become a Christian speaker, Christian author. She's dead from the shoulders down. She paints marvelously with her teeth, as you can see. She speaks. We've had the privilege of hearing her speak at a conference we went to one time. I mean, she is a marvelous representation of God's grace. She she writes, she says, regarding the glorified body that one day we'll receive. She says, I can hardly believe it. I, with shriveled bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled heels, no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine? I often wonder what it's going to be like to take my first steps, to dance the first dance, to actually be able to feed myself, to actually begin to be able to hug somebody and not just them hugging me. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find incredible hope. One day in the resurrection, one day, we'll receive this body that he's promised to us for all of eternity. And the new creations and new heavens and new earth will have the opportunity to serve him, to glorify him, to work for him forever and ever. And he looks at these Sadducees and said, you don't understand the word of God, you don't understand the power of God. You're sadly mistaken. So this young lawyer is listening to all this. And he, he's, he's, he's bright, he's inquisitive, he's a legal expert, he's impressed with Jesus' wisdom. And so he comes, I think, as a true seeker seeking a solution, but he's not all in. He's not all in. If you look at him, he says, what commandment is the foremost of all these? You're a master teacher, I'm impressed with your intelligence and your ability. What's the greatest teaching here? And Jesus says, well, there's not one, but there's two. And he weds the two, and it's the first time any rabbi, any teacher that we have recorded weds these two things. First of all, he quotes the great Shema, Deuteronomy 6. Here is called Shema because the Hebrew word for here is Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your might, your strength. And then he quotes Leviticus, and love your neighbor as yourself. He's saying here's what the greatest command is. A great command is to love God and love others. Love and love, that's the greatest command. So if you want to look like the Father, you want to be like the Father, you want to represent the Father, you're going to be one who loves the Father and you're going to love other people. And look at the response of the legal expert. First of all, I mean, who else but a lawyer would say to the Son of God, you got it right, (laughs) you passed the final exam. I mean, he looks at him and in verse 32 he says, right, teacher, you stated it right, you've got it right. A plus 100 with a star. Jesus, you are the man. You got it right. You passed the SAT. You're done. But there's an aha moment in this young man's life. You stated uh, he's the one and there's no other, and you stated to love others. If you're writing your Bibles, underline the end of verse 33. This is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Did Jesus say that? Jesus didn't say that. This lawyer brilliantly deduced what Jesus was saying. If I'm loving God and loving others, it's not about keeping the rules. It's not about doing the right things. It's not about the right sacrifices and offerings. It's about the heart. And Jesus looks at him and says, You're close to the kingdom. You're close to the kingdom. Do you see what this young man is saying? When he tags that and says, this is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices, he's saying, I understand what you're saying. When we come with our hearts and we love God and love others, it's not about keeping the rules. It's about knowing you. And Jesus says, you're right. Keep coming. You are close to the kingdom. He came seeking a solution. Now he needs to be all in. Master, your teaching is excellent. You know what Jesus does here? He weds the, the, the first four commandments and the and the next six commandments of the ten commandments, loving God, loving others, places them next to one another, weds them together and says, here's the essence of the spiritual life, loving God and loving others. So let's ask ourselves a final question this morning. Do I love God? Do I love others? Do I love God? Don't say I love God and damn his name. Don't say you love God and diss his people. Don't say you love God and hoard your talents and treasures. Don't say you love God and get wasted with your friends. Don't say you love God and be doing somebody you're not married to. If I told you I am madly in love with Beth, but we haven't talked in the last three years, what would you say? First of all, you don't need to be our pastor. That's what you'd say. And secondly, you're deluded. I I, I love Beth with all my heart, but... When we travel, she goes one place and I go another because what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I get things I want to do when I'm not with her. I, I love my wife so much, but I've got to have a little freedom, so this past week I slept with three different women. What would you say? See, God, I love you so much, but never talked to you. God, I love you so much, but got these other idols. God, I love you so much, but... I don't take you with me because my lifestyle won't allow it. Do you really love God? Do you love others? Oh yeah, Pastor Gray, I, I man, I, I shoot you, I love others. I love others. Got a bumper sticker on the back of my car says Christians aren't perfect but forgiven. I love other people. Do you? How have you displayed love to someone else this week? John Wesley wrote these words about love. He said, let love not visit you as a transient guest, but be the constant temper of your soul. See that your heart is filled at all times and on all occasions with real benevolence, not to those only that love you, but to every soul. Let love pant in your heart. Let love sparkle in your eyes. Let love shine in your actions. Whenever you open your lips, let it be done with love. And let there be on your tongue the law of kindness. Everyone that is born of a woman has a claim to your goodwill. Everybody who knows that man, everybody who knows that woman says this. I can tell you this about them. They love God. They love others. Because their hearts have been transformed. They walk with the Savior. This is not about keeping the rules of religion, but displaying a changed heart. Worship team, would you join me up here? It's not about keeping the rules of religion. It's about displaying a changed heart. You see, when your heart is changed, when your heart is changed, you're going to love him and love others. I'm convinced of this. You can serve without loving, but you cannot love without serving. You can serve without loving. You can serve with a bad attitude. You can serve out of guilt. You can serve out of shame. You can serve. But but when you love, your life will be filled with service to the Savior and to others. Just will be. Because that's what a loving heart does. One day we're going to rise again. One day that grave will be empty. This week I did the funeral of one of our dear friends, former elder Leroy Winburn. And standing out there and uh, we actually took dirt and threw onto Leroy's casket and I thought one day Leroy's coming out of there I'm studying this passage in the morning I'm preaching that service in the afternoon Leroy's coming out of there I, I, I do all these funerals one day that person who knows Christ is coming out of there what about you the resurrection unto eternity in the presence of Christ or a resurrection or be cast into Christ's eternity let's pray Father, our desire is to rise up and be with the Savior. To rise up and be with you eternally, to worship you, to honor you. Father, we recognize the future is not about us, it's about you. If you're here today and you aren't sure if Christ is your Savior, where you're going to spend eternity, I beg you right now to come before the Savior, the risen Savior, the resurrected Savior, and to place your faith in the one who died on your behalf. Or maybe right now you verbally say you love God and you love others, but there's nothing in your life that resembles that. You could not be convicted. There's not enough evidence right now to demonstrate that you love God or you love others. Worship team is going to sing a song. It's about rising again. While they're singing, I'll be in the back. I'll pray with anybody about anything you'd like to pray about. And why don't you just sit here and do business with God. God, I want to demonstrate my life, my love for you, my love for others. I'll be in the back. You want to pray about anything, join me. So the worship team sings, make this song your prayer. We look at who he is and what he's done.
1: There's a peace. There's an anchor for my soul I can say it is well Jesus has overcome And the grave is over He's risen from my eyes Jesus has overcome
2: and the grace
3: Thank you for the promise that we have of eternity with you. The day, Lord, when all things wrong will be made right, all things broken will be made new. And Lord, for now, we walk in the trust and hope, the promise that you give. Because of what's been done for us, Lord, when you see us, you see the righteousness of Christ. So we're broken by the grace, reminded of your love for us that is perfect. As we leave this place today, Lord, would your spirit work within us that we might live each day walking in your truth and your hope and the promise you give. We love you. We adore you. In Christ's name. Amen.